Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Amen. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2. Uh, verses 18 to 22. We're continuing in our series on Mark, uh, Jesus, the King who came to die. And we're right now in Mark chapter 2 and the early part of chapter 3. We're in a series of five straight stories where there's a controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. So we'll be looking at verses 18 to 22 today. As always, it'll be up here on the screen and also in your booklet. But I encourage you to follow along in your Bible. Hear now the word of our sovereign God. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. I remember a number of years ago, um, I was uh, up late in the evening and saw that Larry King was going to be interviewing a a Christian singer named Jennifer Knapp. And she had what is still one of my favorite Christian CDs, a CD named Kansas. Um, But she was on Larry King that evening because Jennifer Knapp had dropped out of the music scene after winning all kinds of awards. She'd gone away for eight years and nobody knew where she was or what had gone on. But she had announced that she was coming out as a lesbian, and so she was going to be on the Larry King show, and she was going to be debating with uh, a pastor from out in California. And he was kind, but kind of, he held to the biblical line regarding human sexuality. But in the middle of the interchange, and this is the part I really remember, she asked him, and she said, do you eat shellfish? And he said, yes, I do. And she said, well, if you can eat shellfish and God said no to that, then how do you know he hasn't changed this? And he said, because on shellfish, God changed his mind. At which point I lost my mind and started screaming at the TV, like, did you sleep through Bible in seminary? I mean, how was that your answer? And then he tried to recover But it was all lost at that point as he was trying to show that God had changed his mind in this particular way. And it was really over by that point. And I bring that story up, I was thinking about it as I was reading this text, because Jesus and the Pharisees are having an argument here over some practices that were current in their day and old covenant practices. And Jesus is talking about he's the king who has come and he's instituting the new covenant. He's letting us know that there are changes that happen. But the question is, what's the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? And what actually changed and what did not change? And how is it that it's done so that it's not some kind of just arbitrary thing? That is there a clear biblical teaching regarding what we can expect regarding the relationship of the Son of Man and the New Covenant? That's what we're going to look at today. So notice... The actual story here begins as a story regarding questions about fasting. And some people come to Jesus, we read in verse 18, and they're asking, they're saying, look, the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John, they're all fasting. Why is it that your disciples are not fasting? And notice here, this is kind of an important thing because Jesus has been disagreeing with the Pharisees a lot. But John had pointed to Jesus. Jesus and John are on the same team, so to speak. And so it's not just that the Pharisees are fasting. The disciples of John are fasting. So Jesus, 
why aren't your disciples doing the same thing that all these other disciples are doing? You might be fighting with the Pharisees, but you're not fighting with John. He seems to think that disciples ought to fast a lot, as we're going to see. Why is it your disciples are not? And we should understand, we need to step back for just a minute and ask ourselves a question. You know, what is this practice of fasting in Israel? Because it's not something many Americans, if you do see about fasting today, it's usually in regard to losing weight or some kind of health thing, much more than it is as a spiritual practice. But it was very, very common in ancient Israel. And this actually was because they were commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29, God commanded his people, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native born or an alien living among you. And he goes on. Now, what's interesting here is so the, the 10th day of the seventh month is actually the day of atonement, or what we oftentimes hear referred to as Yom Kippur, which is the Hebrew for day of atonement. And the phrase deny yourselves was understood from long before the time of Jesus all the way to the modern time, that was the way of saying to fast. They were being commanded, the, the way they denied themselves was they were not to eat. They were going to fast, and that was from early Judaism all the way to the present. And what's going on is on the day of Yom Kippur, the day in which the animals were going to be slain, you're going to take the blood into the, to the most holy place, uh, the people were to show humility by fasting by and, and some uh, other places it refers to it as afflicting yourselves that they were they were doing this to show humility and in fact many Jews today the one time that they will fast is on Yom Kippur so that was what was commanded in the Old Testament and interestingly that is really the only command to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, you are to fast. However, during the exile, it appears that other fasts began to be practiced. And we learn about these actually just as you're reading along in the book of Zechariah. It's not commanded, but God notes this is what's happening. In Zechariah 8, 19, and there's actually two or three places in Zechariah where these fasts are brought up. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, the fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah, therefore love, truth, and peace. So we had already had the tenth day of the seventh month, but notice here it's no longer just the seventh month, there's the fourth month, the fifth month, and the tenth month. Now these were never commanded in the Old Testament, but this had become the practice, and it appears scholars think that these are related to the destruction of the temple the exile, and then the return to the land, that they kind of uh, symbolized these things and remembered these things by having these fasts. So they weren't commanded, but they had kind of been added to the practice. So now we've got four different days of fasting. Now, you'll be shocked to find this out, but that wasn't sufficient for the Pharisees. God commanded one, they added three others, the Pharisees said what we should really do is fast twice a week, because that's the way Pharisees do things, right? So if you remember, Jesus tells a parable where the Pharisee and the tax collector, in this parable they're talking and the tax collector recognizes his sin and he won't even look up to heaven, he's just crying out for mercy. The Pharisee in his prayer says this to God. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And we read past this as kind of color commentary for us in the parable, but it's actually reflecting real reality. The Pharisees did practice the tithe. In fact, they practiced it in a very legalistic manner. They, they tithed on things that God said you don't have to tithe on. And they said, oh no, we're going to tithe on them. And They've been told to fast once. They were doing it twice a week. They actually did it on Monday and Thursday of each week. We know this from extra biblical sources. So every Monday and every Thursday, the Pharisees fasted. And again, it was meant to be a sign of humility and repentance before God for sin. But in the parable, is the Pharisee doing this out of humility and repentance? In fact, it's become the exact opposite 
rather than being a sign of humility, it's a cause of pride. And rather than being a sign of repentance, he's actually using it to justify himself before God. You remember Jesus says, I tell you, the tax collector went home justified, not the Pharisee who was attempting to justify himself. So in practice, for some it was becoming the opposite of what was intended. Instead of an external way to repent and mourn for personal unrighteousness, it had become a practice that promoted an internal spirit of self-righteousness, the exact opposite of why God had given fasting in the first place. So fasting by the time of Jesus is a practice that is rooted in a command of God in the Old Testament. You were to fast on the Day of Atonement, that one day each year. But it had grown well beyond the biblical command uh, and at times even ran completely counter to its original intent in the law. And this is important because we see this over and over and over again between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus is interested in what the law is really after. They're interested in some kind of external observance. So from this, we get where we're going to see Jesus is going to answer again, not in the way they would expect, but he's going to say that the real question is regarding the Son of Man and the New Covenant. You're wanting to just talk about this old covenant practice that you've added all this stuff to, but the real question is what about the Son of Man and the new covenant? So notice the presence of Jesus changes the situation. That's what Jesus says to them. He doesn't answer whether it's okay to fast or not. He says you're not recognizing that the situation has fundamentally changed with my appearance. Notice in verse 19 he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? Now, in ancient Israel, a wedding celebration lasted an entire week. Th think how much we put into one day around that, right? I mean, one day of a wedding is usually pretty exhausting, right? They did it for an entire week. Everybody is together and you're doing this and the bridegroom would be there with the people and not only when Jesus says, you know, do they fast with the bridegroom there? The answer that they all had to recognize is not only is the answer no, they don't fast. It was actually against you could not fast. It was actually a requirement you were not allowed to fast at that time because this is supposed to be a time of joy. This is supposed to be a time of celebration and fasting is a time of mourning and repentance. So they absolutely do not go together. So Jesus is saying in essence, look, the bridegroom that the people of God have been waiting for, me, I'm here. And since I'm here, the people of God right now should not be fasting because now is the time of joy. And notice he says in verse 20, but the time is going to come when the bridegroom is going to be taken away and on that day they will fast. This is a veiled allusion Jesus is making here to his death. He's not bluntly stating it. But he's telling them, I'm the bridegroom, I'm here, but there is going to be a day that comes when I'm going to be taken away, which is why, uh, for example, you may recognize many Christians fast on Good Friday. And that actually is rooted back in this statement of Jesus, that on Good Friday, Jesus was taken away, and on that day they will fast. So the church started practicing a fast very often on Good Friday. And this also explains, see, not only why the Pharisees were fasting, but see, John and his disciples, John's ministry was to say, the bridegroom is coming, the kingdom is coming, it's, it's almost here. So Jesus says, of course they were fasting, but the bridegroom is here, the kingdom has arrived. It was all about me. So even something as recent as John, we're still in a different time. We're in a different place. So I can't just do what John did. My disciples don't just do what John's disciples did because everything changed when I came. Now, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, believers do fast again. That's appropriate. We, we can't do that. But even then, we're going to see it's not done just like it was before. 
because with the coming of Jesus, things have changed. And that's what Jesus goes to when he said, even, you know, the day's coming, I'll be taken away and they're going to fast. He then points out everything is still shifted from that point forward. Notice in verses 21 and 22, he says, you don't take a patch of unshrunk cloth and put it on an old garment that's got a tear. Because if you sew it on there, what's going to happen when you wash it, the new cloth is going to shrink and then it's going to rip away and it's going to make the tear worse. He says, or I could put it this way. You don't take new wine and put it in old wineskins. Because when you put new wine inside the wineskins, what does it start doing over time? It ferments. And as it ferments, what happens? It produces gas and it expands. And the old wineskin has expanded as far as it can go. It had already expanded the first time. So what happens then is it busts the wineskin open. And so Jesus says, no, no, no. You got to put new wine in new wineskins. And these are two very common illustrations. Again, everybody recognizes, just like we saw last week, you know, that uh, the, the healthy are not the ones who need a doctor. It's the sick need a doctor. He's using regular illustrations that they can understand and that they would all agree with and saying, you're not understanding how that applies in the current situation. Here they recognize, no, 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 you wouldn't use new cloth. You would get old cloth to fix it. And you would put uh, new wine in new wineskins. These were common practices, but what Jesus is saying is, don't you understand? We were in the old covenant, but now with my coming, the new covenant has come. And when the new covenant has come, you can't just practice everything the way it was before. Jesus' arrival has ushered in the kingdom and the new covenant, and this changes the situation in how we practice the faith. And so even if we're going to fast today or do other practices or look at something in the old covenant today, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, the cloth of the new covenant can't simply be patched on to the old covenant. The new wine of the new covenant can't simply be poured into the old wineskin in the old forms of the old covenant. But with me saying that, did God just change his mind? Maybe that was a good question. Maybe we're just eating shellfish because God changed his mind. Maybe we're eating bacon because God changed his mind. Maybe it's because it's really tasty and we like bacon, right? And we're glad to be in the new covenant, right? <laughs> but see, this is, this is a, an important theological question because this is what Jesus is driving at here. What is the relationship between the old and the new covenant? Because that explains why he wasn't participating in the fasting. And we're going to see the same thing carries forward in controversies over the Sabbath. So let me, let me point out three things regarding the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant, and then specifically talk about how God's law is related in these covenants. First, the old covenant promises and commands find fulfillment in the new covenant. Here's a couple of passages in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is preaching, and he says this, We tell you the good news, what God promised to our fathers. He has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. So notice what he says is the Old Testament is containing promise. The New Testament contains fulfillment. The old covenant is promised. The new covenant is fulfillment. And who's it centered on? Jesus. See, when Jesus comes and Jesus lives and dies and is buried and is resurrected and ascended, Paul's saying everything shifted. We went from promise to fulfillment. And Paul's not coming up with this on his own. The Lord Jesus actually in the Sermon on the Mount had spoken and said this. He said, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is the Old Testament writings. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, they were a promise. They were looking forward, and what I've come to do is to fill it. And so what that means for us is the Old Covenant is anticipatory, and the New Covenant is the fulfillment. So that's the first thing we need to keep in mind. Number two, the Old Covenant is type and shadow. The New Covenant is is reality. Okay? The Apostle Paul again writes this in Colossians chapter 2 because they were having a problem in Colossae that there was this heretical group had grown up and one of the things they were doing is they were trying to take 
old covenant practices and make Gentile Christians follow them. And they were saying that this was going to help them in their struggle against sin. And what Paul says is it actually doesn't help you in your struggle against sin at all. It actually won't accomplish that for a reason we'll come to in just a moment. But notice what he says. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, food things, including fasting, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And literally in the Greek, what it says is they're the shadow, Christ is the body. He's what casts a shadow. What they always were is they were a shadow that was reflecting of who Christ was. But once you have the body, you don't pay attention to the shadow. You don't look at that. We might think of it even today, whether it's a photograph and the person that's the reality. I'm, I'm grateful I have photographs of my wonderful wife, Linda. But who thinks I have a question? If she's there, do I talk to the photograph? Right. That, that would be dumb, right? I don't have time to talk to you. I have the photo. See, that, that's ridiculousness. And that's what Paul's saying is, look, those things were a shadow. They were a picture. They were a type. The reality came with Jesus Christ in the new covenant. So these old covenant types and shadows pointed forward to Jesus who is the reality. And so the old covenant is a temporary type and shadow, and the new covenant is the permanent reality. And then this leads to the third thing. The old covenant is external and unable to change us, but the new covenant is internal and powerful to change us. Now, I'm going to put up a lengthy passage of Scripture. It'll take a couple of screens to get through here, but this really describes it. The book of Hebrews is all about this thing that I'm talking about, okay, that, that, and that Jesus is laying out in Mark chapter 2. And in Hebrews chapter 8, he's referencing this. He's actually comparing Jesus back with Moses. And he says, starting in verse 6, but the, Jesus, the, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. You should, you should definitely be screaming amen inside right now. Read, read old covenant. I, I'm great. It, it's glorious, but it's nothing like the new covenant. We live in one that is founded on better promises. I can start preaching on it. Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. The problem was not the covenant. Who is the problem? We have met the enemy and he is us. Okay? So, it was found, uh, there'd been nothing wrong with that one. God wouldn't have uh, brought another, but God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So what's the problem there? Israel's unfaithful. I mean, I'm, I'm actually reading the Bible through this year for the first time in many years. That's what I'm doing for my quiet times. And I was just reading this morning. They come through the Red Sea. God has delivered them. He's done all this wonderful stuff. And we get to Exodus 16. And what's the very first thing they start doing? Oh, jeez. We had leeks and onions in Egypt. We'd be better off there. I mean, sure, we were slaves. Is that, is that not the way we are? I mean, it's like, man, the, the waves are still covering Pharaoh up back there. What are y'all talking about? But this is exactly, and they did it time and again. So God said, I've got to have a new covenant. So verse 10, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, 
He has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear, which is a reference to the fact that the temple was about to be destroyed when Hebrews is written. And so notice here what we're told. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And that's because the old covenant is weak because the people were weak and they could not keep it. And that's because in the old covenant, the law is external. Where was the law written? On tablets of stone. And what did the law do? It thundered at us about what we were supposed to do and how much did it help us do it? Zero. It did nothing. In fact, Paul said, even though the law is holy, he said, when the law said, thou shalt not covet. Paul says, what did I find myself doing? Coveting everywhere. I never even knew. I hadn't thought about it. Now I'm thinking about it. Okay, see, that's exactly what it does. The law doesn't help. But in the new covenant, the law is interiorly written on our hearts. It's no longer external, it's interior. In the old covenant, sins could only be covered temporarily. So how often did they have to go back in? How often does Yom Kippur happen? Every year. And Hebrews tells us it's just a constant reminder of our sins. How many times is Jesus sacrificed? Once. And it's all done. Because he's not just covering over, he actually takes our sins. And he quenches the righteous wrath of God. The law is silenced, we are cleansed, we are forgiven, our wickedness is removed, our sins are remembered no more. Like the song we sang this morning, His Mercy is More. It's an amazing thing that God forgets. Thanks be to God. Google doesn't. God does. He forgets because Christ's blood has covered our sins. This is a glorious covenant that we are in. So the fulfillment that Jesus brings in the new covenant is so great that the old covenant is obsolete and it passes away. But I want you to notice there that that does not mean the law of God passes away. Notice there what we're told is I'm going to take my law. It's not that I'm going to say, well, they couldn't keep the law, so we'll just drop the law. It's not I changed my mind. No, instead of the law being on tablets, I'm going to write it on their heart. But what law is it? It's the law of God. There isn't another law. God didn't create a new law. It is the same law. So the relationship between the law of God and the old covenant and the new is we have to understand in the old covenant there are different aspects to God's law. There are ceremonial laws. There are sacrificial laws. You have to take a goat and you have to kill it, or a lamb and you have to kill it. And then there are, is God's moral law. Okay, different aspects. The ceremonial, for example, is circumcision. And what were we told if you did not circumcise a male on the eighth day, what was to happen? Literally, he has to be cut off from his people, a play on words. Circumcision, you're to cut it off, and if you don't cut it off, they're to be cut off, okay? They're to be put away. They're, they can't be part of the people, and this was to be done forever. It included food laws, which included fasting, uh, but there was all kinds of food laws, including you can't eat shellfish, and you can't eat pork, uh, there were special days. There was all, Sabbath wasn't just a weekly. There were all of these days that you had to observe. There was stuff about clothing. We're probably all violating that and not even thinking about it because you couldn't have two types of material at the same time. Okay? All of these things were part of the ceremonial law. There was also the sacrificial law, which was the sacrifices to cover sin and to give thanks to God. But then there is the moral law, which are the ethical laws. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You cannot steal. You cannot lie. You can't slander against your neighbor. All of these things that are the moral law. And so when we come to the new covenant, the ceremonial and sacrificial aspects of the law, they were always only temporary. It's not that God changed his mind. They only had a temporary purpose. 
once the reality comes, the temporary goes away. It's kind of like, um, you know, this is, this is changed today, but you remember in the old days, you would go down and you would apply for a credit card. You're like at Sears, you know, and would you like our credit card? And they do a thing and they give you a temporary card. What happens when the real card comes? Is that because the temporary card that Sears changed its mind? No, the temporary card was just there until the permanent card came. Then the temporary card goes away. That was always and only its purpose. That's the way it is with the ceremonial and sacrificial laws. Once the reality has come, they no longer apply. You can see this. Jesus talks about this in Mark 7, verses 18 and 19. So we're going to come to this later. They're having another debate, and they're arguing about eating with ceremonially washed hands or not. And Jesus is talking to the disciples, and you're going to be shocked by this, but they don't get it. They're confused. And we know that because our loving Lord says, are you so dull? This is, (laughs) who would like to be there and be the disciples? Because the answer would be, apparently so, Lord, (laughs) because I'm like rather confused right now. They're, because they're, they're thinking an old covenant mindset. And so Jesus says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? It doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And so Mark tells us, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. In other words, to answer the question, Jesus said, you can eat shellfish now. Not because I changed my mind, but because it only had a purpose until I came. And once I've come, it is no more. It served its purpose in marking out the people of God and teaching them certain things, but it has served its purpose now. And so Jesus declares all food clean, the ceremonial laws are no longer in effect, and The same thing is true of the whole ceremonial law, what we just saw in Colossians. Paul said that's food, it's special days, it's all kinds of these external ceremonial observances because they were only in effect to point you to something else, but they don't have any actual power to change your heart. Notice what Jesus is saying. See, this doesn't go into your heart, and it's out of the heart that our behavior comes. If I eat pork... It doesn't change my character. However, there are other things that can change my character. And that's what Jesus moves on to. So if you look, and again, you can look not only here, Colossians 2.16, Hebrews 9, verse 10, and actually all of Hebrews 7 to 10 is on this fact that the ceremonial and sacrificial laws have reached their fulfillment and they are no more. However, Jesus continues on in the very next verses. In Mark chapter 7, and says this. He says, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. You see what Jesus is saying? See, the ceremonial and sacrificial, that was always only temporary. Away. But here's what's always here. It is eternal. It's the moral law. My thoughts, my sexual behavior, whether I murder someone, whether I uh, steal, whether I'm full of greed and malice and envy. See, Jesus says, that's what makes you unclean. That's what is transforming your character. That's what actually separates you from God. Not whether you eat pork or not. It was always this way. And so the moral law still applies because the moral law is a reflection of God's unchanging character. God doesn't have something against shellfish. Amen? I'm glad for that. God does definitely does not have something against bacon. That's why he made it so tasty, right? But he does have something against murder. You know why murder's wrong? Not because it's some arbitrary thing. It's because it goes against the very nature of God. And why sexual sin is wrong is because it goes against the very nature of God. 
And why stealing is wrong is because it goes against the very nature of God. It's not an arbitrary, separated thing that God said, you know, I've made everything. I should probably come up with a list of do's and don'ts. The do's and don'ts are a reflection of his character. And so they never, ever change. But sacrificial and ceremonial things were there to instruct the people for a period of time. They're not based on his character, and therefore they do change. And so morality doesn't change over time. It doesn't change over culture. Murder, sexual immorality, theft, lying are, are always wrong. So God's not changed his mind with the coming of Jesus. In fact, it's the fulfillment of everything he's ever been telling us and instructing us in all aspects. And the but the difference is the ceremony and sacrificial find their fulfillment in Jesus and we don't have to kill little lambs and goats anymore. But the moral, the difference is that now rather than it just being on the outside in the glorious new covenant, it's now written on the inside. And I'm not even taking the time to point out that the really great news is the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us to empower us. To do that, we'll be praying that as we come to the Lord's table in a moment. So, how do we apply this and we'll come to the Lord's table? Number one, do I see that everything is centered on Jesus Christ? This is so important for us to see in the grass. See, the, the basic problem that the Pharisees had and that they refused to see is that who is Scripture about? Jesus. See, Jesus is saying, you don't understand. If you understood who I was and you understood what everything is about, you wouldn't even be asking this question as to why we're not fasting. You would recognize and you wouldn't be fasting right now either. All scripture is focused on Jesus and every bit of it has to be interpreted in light of his person and his work for us. That's why, you know, we've got our tagline, Bay Ridge Christian Church is biblically based, Christ-centered. Because it is all about him it's all about him in the scripture it is all about him in the life of the church it's all about him in the way we ought to be living our personal lives our family the way we're treating people it is all centered on jesus christ and it is so imperative that we don't be like the pharisees they were they were noting all the little independent points of scripture and then missing the entire picture of what scripture is about and some christians can do the same thing today there's lots of stuff that you can hear where christians will misinterpret and apply the old testament as if we're still under the old covenant and i want to again bang my head and say do you seriously want to be under the old covenant i do not at all this covenant is so far superior to the old covenant uh, some people act as if we're somehow in the promised land, or there are actually Christians out there that regard, you know, keeping of food laws and such, and missing the entire point. It's to ignore that all these things were always and only about Jesus, and they find their fulfillment in him. But even more tragically, when we do that, what we're communicating to other people then, because they don't do everything, they'll, they'll say some of these things, and then they won't do others. But what that tells people is, then we're really just kind of picking and choosing what to apply, which sins to focus on, and Scripture becomes this jumbled confusion. But what I'm telling you is there's a pair of spectacles that makes the whole Scripture line up, and that pair of spectacles is Jesus. When you're looking through him, it all makes sense. If you don't, it looks to us and it looks to others around us as if we're just picking and choosing as this random jumbled mess. But that's not what we're called to do. So we have to rigorously keep pointing people to Jesus. It is about him. Okay, and that, that should be liberating, let me say to us, because let, let me relieve us of this. Bay Ridge Christian Church is not the solution to Annapolis's problems. Amen? Okay, we're, we're here to serve. We're going to continue serving. We are blessed. We're going to continue being a blessing. We're going to do all that. But what is the solution to Annapolis's problems? Washington, D.C.'s problems. 
Boston's problems, Moscow's problems. I mean, you name it, wherever it is, it is Christ. And our job is to just keep pointing towards him. Because if I can get people into living contact with him, that's going to resolve the other issues. I'm not the solution. You're not the solution. Jesus is. It makes our job really simple. Whatever the question, the answer is Jesus, right? Okay, that's what we're, we're rigorously thinking about. So, number two, and this is important for us today because this question, when I started off with the, you know, the story of Jennifer Knapp, it was actually because I just was listening to Kansas on a run this past week. I really loved the CD that she'd put out there, but this question is so current for us. What about God's moral law? We're, we're asked this, and not just regarding questions of human sexuality, but in a whole bunch of ways, it's constantly coming up to us, has God really said? Is God's moral law really the same? See, the focus is on trying to change the moral law. Nobody would care if you decided not to eat bacon other than pork producers, right? Nobody cares if you don't eat shellfish. That, those are not, or if I said I'm not going to wear clothing that's got two types of material on it. Very few people would care. What does everybody care in our culture about undermining? God's moral law. That is what we are after because that comes down to affect where I really live. But the moral law didn't change with the coming of Jesus and the new covenant because it's based on God's unchanging character. The new covenant simply gave us the power to begin to be able to walk in it. Not perfectly, but it's no longer on the outside, it's on the inside. So Jesus' coming actually clarified and intensified the moral law. We could have continued on where he said, I didn't come to abolish it, I came to fulfill it. And he said, so by the way, it says don't murder but what am I telling you that really means? Do you get angry when you're not supposed to? Is that abolishing the law? I mean, who in here has managed to go through their whole life and not murder somebody? Okay, I've kept that. Who in here has managed to go through their entire life and not get angry when they should? I've never gotten angry. Just Right? Right? I mean... Who's kept that? But see, that's what Jesus said. Jesus said, it said, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't think about it. I'm telling you, watch the words that come out of your mouth. See, Jesus has actually clarified it and intensified it. He showed us that the 10th commandment about coveting, which drove at the heart, says that's always what the law was about. So he didn't abolish it. He's done that. So our culture needs us to be clear and to not compromise to avoid persecution. Nobody's going to care if you stand up and say, I'm walking in obedience to God, I don't eat pork anymore. Nobody will care. But if we walk in obedience to God following just, say, the Ten Commandments, that will create issues and problems. And that's where the temptation comes for you and I to want to change, to shift it, because we don't like being persecuted, right? But see, we cannot do that. Now, we have to show the compassion of Christ. Remember, we just saw last week, Jesus had upset him the week before because he's calling tax collectors and sinners. Now he's upsetting them. We're going to see he just keeps upsetting them everywhere he goes, okay? We're to show compassion on everyone, but this compassion includes when Jesus forgives people, he says, go and sin no more. And this is because, and it's so important for us to understand, God's moral law is not arbitrary. It's not restrictive. It's a reflection of God's character. It's the nature of the entire cosmos, and it's what leads to human flourishing. When I was raising my kids, I didn't want them to steal, not so that it wouldn't bring a bad reflection on me as a dad, but because it's destructive to them to have the kind of character that steals. It's destructive to them if they're liars. It's destructive to them if they're sexually immoral. It's destructive to them if they're constantly greedy. It distorts and misshapes our soul. God does it for our good. And we need to be clear on that and put it out. God's law is for our joy. That's why the psalmist could say, oh, how I love your law. 
That sounds strange to us. But how about, oh, how I love that you have warned me not to step on that landmine and maim myself. That's what God's law is. And that's what it does for us. So we need to be clear and not deceive. God's not changed his mind. Morality's not relative. Sin is always, always, always destructive. The wages of sin is death. But God is here to offer us life. With that, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And thanks be to God, brothers and sisters, this is the table of the new covenant. Is that good news? I mean, we get to come to the table of the new covenant. And we come here to this table because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And it's good that we don't have to come here and sacrifice an animal to come into the presence of God. We no longer do that. We are able to come because he has been sacrificed once and for all. That's the glory of it being the table of the new covenant. But we also come here because in the new covenant, God's law is no longer thundering from outside and condemning me, but it comes inside. So there's something in me that says, you know what? I realize I have sinned, and I want to confess that sin, and I want to be cleansed by broken body and shed blood, and I want to walk in fellowship with my Father, and I want the Spirit to help me not engage in self-destructive patterns of behavior. In all these ways, it's the table of the new covenant. And so, um, again, if you did not grab one of the packets, there are some at the back, and we want to remind you this table is open for all. You do not have to be a member of our church. This is the Lord's table. But that means we do have to be believers. We do have to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. To take Jesus's parable those who are willing to come and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, are welcome. Those who want to say, Lord, I'm coming because I fast twice a week, I give a tithe of all I've done, and I'm a pretty good guy, you should let it pass. Because that's the antithesis of what it means to be a believer. So if you are in the faith, we encourage you to come and to receive. And today, as I am going through this and praying, a lot of it is going to be out of Hebrews chapter 8 where we read and Ezekiel. And I encourage us, let's celebrate the fact that we are the new covenant people of God. We come to this table because despite your sin and my sin, because of the work of Jesus Christ, the Father stands up now and says, you are my people. And I am your God. And he does that openly through Jesus Christ. So come and receive. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, you are a God who makes and keeps covenant. And your covenants are perfect. But we are weak and have broken covenant with you time and again. We broke your covenant in the garden. We broke your covenant in the wilderness. We broke your covenant in the promised land. And we here today have personally rebelled against your rule in our lives. For this reason, you sent your son to mediate a new covenant, one that would stand in spite of our weaknesses and failures. We confess that Jesus took our flesh, and as the son of man, he fulfilled the covenant in our place. 
His body was broken so that we might be healed. And through his work, we are your people, now and forever. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Lord Jesus, you are the mediator of the new covenant. And through your ministry, we inherit all the glorious promises of God. Through your blood, our wickedness is forgiven. Through your blood, our sins are remembered no more. We give you thanks for your work in our behalf, humbly recognizing our utter inability to save ourselves and rejoicing in your utter ability to save even us. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Why don't we stand together? And again, I'm going to be based on Hebrews 8 and Ezekiel 36, which is another passage regarding the new covenant, crying out to God for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Please cry out with me. Lord, when your people had broken your covenant time and again, you promised the glorious new covenant in which you would cleanse us from all our impurities and idols so that you would be our God and we would be your people. Yet this covenant did not change your moral law, for it is eternal and unchanging. So instead, you promised to give us a new heart with your law inscribed upon it and to give us your spirit to move us to obey your law and to walk in all your ways. As your new covenant people, we thank you for this great provision. And so we cry out, Spirit of God, fill us anew. Etch the law of God on our minds so that we might think, not as the world, but as the sons and daughters of God. Soften our hearts so that we might desire righteousness all our days. Spirit of God, shape our will so that we might stand strong against Satan and sin and walk in a manner that is pleasing to you until we stand before you on the final day. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our mediator, our prophet, our priest, and our King. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Now receive the benediction and blessing of God. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever, as those full of the glorious blessings of the new covenant go forth blessed and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.